to Daniel chapter 9. And if you want to mark one other place, you can also put a marker in Nehemiah chapter 2. Normally in preaching, I try to stick very close to the passage that's at hand, not do a lot of cross-referencing and having you run around from place to place in the Bible. But this is a unique passage that we're studying this morning, complex, important, and not one of my areas of expertise. So I'll be cross-referencing a few things, and one of those is Nehemiah, and we'll work our way through it together. How many of you have ever studied the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel? Have you studied it before? How many of you would say, I have never heard of this before? Anybody? Okay, good. So this is going to be a real eye-opener, so we'll dive in. If you've been traveling with us through Daniel, you were with us as we got into Daniel's prayer, reading his Bible, reading the letter from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. Daniel, with all the other captives, is in Babylon. Jeremiah, the prophet, is communicating, and he writes a letter, a God-inspired letter to the captives. And Daniel gets a hold of it. He reads it. He finds out that God's land is for 70 years of captivity. And then he's going to bring the captives home. He says, I know the plans I have for you and the future that I have for you. And Daniel reads that and he says, oh, wow, we've been here about 67 years. It's going to happen soon. We're going to be taken back to our home in Jerusalem. So Daniel lets that motivate him to pray. So he prays, confesses his own sin and confesses the sins of his nations, the transgressions and all the things that they had done wrong. And that's what brings us to the second half. He's in the middle of that prayer. God hears, God answers. In the middle of that prayer, we jump into verse 20 of chapter 9. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication or request before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, that's Mount Zion, Jerusalem. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, you're familiar with him as the angel, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. So there is Daniel, and he's laboring away, praying and confessing sin, and he's broken by the sin, and he understands what God is doing, and he understands being encouraged to pray because God is oftentimes, God works through our prayers. Billy Graham said that in heaven, there are boxes of blessings that have just never been claimed because people failed to pray. So God wants to bless, but he also wants to cooperate with you. Isn't that crazy? Sometimes God just does what he wants, but oftentimes God wants to cooperate through prayer. I can't say I understand it, but prayer is like the train tracks that the train runs on. The train doesn't do so good without the tracks, but once you lay the tracks down, then the train can run. So that's what Daniel understood that. And in the middle of that prayer, Gabriel shows up, the one who he'd seen in his vision. And I like this. It says, being caused to fly swiftly. Are some angels slow? I don't know. How long does it take them to get here normally? We will read about they have to battle sometimes. There's a whole unseen realm that we don't really think about. There are good angels and bad angels that we call demons, and they battle it out in the atmosphere, and we don't see it. We're blind to it unless God shows it to us. And you'll see that in coming chapters of Daniel. But Gabriel is dispatched to come reach Daniel to further his understanding. And he connects it to the time in his mind, time was about church for him. 
even though he'd been in Babylon his whole life. So verse 22, he informed me and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. So that's literally wise understanding. The information that God gives us is not just so we can answer questions on trivial pursuit or engage in arguments with people who disagree with us. Information that we are given is meant to foster what's talked about here, wise understanding. In other words, understanding that leads to wise choices, spiritual wisdom. Decisions have to be made and I have to reason through what to do and I need information so I can make the best decision. I forget who said it. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in your fruit salad. So you see the difference. So Gabriel is coming to Daniel to give him wise understanding, to let him know something so he can live accordingly. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So stop right there. I like this because Daniel read the Bible and he understood the plain, simple meaning. 70 years, we're going to be in captivity, then God's going to bring us back. That was simple. And he had already said in chapter nine that the people, even though they rebelled against God, they didn't pray, so they didn't understand. And now here's Daniel praying and getting some understanding. And Daniel's understanding may have been a little bit, well, it needed a little bit of fixing, as we say in the South. Need a little bit of fixing. So Daniel may be expecting that after 70 years, when they go back to Jerusalem, that God is gonna set up his eternal kingdom at that time. And this vision, this prophecy is an answer to Daniel's prayer. God is showing Daniel that Gabriel is going to bring to him a bigger picture beyond the 70 years that Daniel is aware of. And I think as we talk about this, Daniel begins to pray. In response to his prayer, God sends an angel to give him wise understanding. There's a lot of people that want to understand stuff, but they don't think to pray about it. Even the Bible. We have lost, I think, the understanding of reading the Bible. Reading the Bible is a supernatural pursuit. In other words, the Bible is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It is alive. It speaks to me. You can read the Bible like a textbook. And you think, I read it. It's a textbook. And there it is. And you'll get some understanding from it. But there's things that God wants to show you that you have to ask him to show you. Paul says that what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man that is in him. In the same way, who can know the things of God except the spirit of God? Can you understand the heart of God? Somebody say no. No, not without help. For instance, I'll take a little bit of a tangent. You got to understand as a pastor, I don't strictly preach from notes. So at any minute while I'm speaking, you've probably already understood this. I got all these thoughts kind of flying around in my brain. You're like, yeah, pastor, scary to be up there. I got thoughts and I go, should I say that? Should I not say that? And there's times when the filter doesn't work (laughs) and then you regret it later on, but it happens. And in talking about this this morning, something I'd been thinking about and it came to my mind and it was one of those moments, do I say it? Do I not say it? And I said, okay, I hope you're feeling gracious because I'm going to say it. So the first service didn't stone me after I said it. So maybe you won't either, but we're talking about understanding the heart of God. And we're talking about praying as you read the Bible to understand the heart of God because there are deep things of God. 
that you're not going to get unless God shows them to you. So the encouragement here is that you would understand that reading the Bible is a supernatural thing that involves the heart of God. So as we talk about our world events, the minute I watch the news and something has happened between someone who's black and someone who's white, all right, you're on the edge of your seat now, right? Okay, where's pastor going? Automatically, the word racism comes up. Automatically. That is a judgment of motive. It has to be discerned by asking the person or the person revealing that it was a racist motivation. I'm not saying it was. I'm not saying it wasn't. But just because a conflict happens between two people of different colors doesn't make it racist. It could just be the two people that happen to be parked near each other in the parking lot and then somebody hit the other's car and they got in an argument. It doesn't necessarily have to be racist. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it could be. But only the person's heart can know that. Only you know if inside the motivation is racist. Could have just been two people having a bad day that happen to have different color skin. Are you with me, church? When you read the Bible, God has motives and desires and plans. And sometimes you can read and miss it completely. And that's why as Daniel prays, he gets help understanding the wisdom of God. When you read the Bible, it is a spiritual endeavor. And you need to know not just information, You need to know motive and understanding the ways of God. God showed Moses his ways, the ways of God. So my encouragement from Daniel and from this passage is that you would sit down to read your Bible and pray in the way David prayed. Oh, Lord, open my eyes. I know it's there. Open my eyes to see wondrous things from your word. The last thing before we move on, it says, I've come to tell you for you are greatly beloved. Now, for a guy that's been spending some time confessing his sin, because that's what he says, I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people. Sometimes when you confess your sin, you have the unfortunate side effect of feeling bad about yourself. You realize that you're a jerk or you acted like a jerk in that moment. So that's why we avoid it because we have this idea that we're really great, righteous people and we need other people to think we're really great, righteous people. And if I actually pray a prayer that confesses a sin of mine, people will look down upon me. So I don't confess sin because I'm afraid that people will see me differently. Well, they're all sinners too. So who cares? But when we confess our sin, we feel bad about ourselves. But at that moment, we are reminded of God's grace and that God doesn't love you because of your performance. He says to Daniel, as he's confessing his sin and the sins of his nation, he says, Daniel, you're greatly beloved. I know you. I know everything about you. Daniel's human. He's just like me and you. I know where you were last night. I know what you thought this morning. I know what you thought that you'd want no one else to know you thought. We all have it. And God says to me, as one of his children, you're greatly beloved. So don't be afraid to confess your sin to God. He already knows. And he'll remind you, you're greatly loved. Now, when we get into the prophecy, verse 24 begins a message from Gabriel I'm going to read the whole thing because then we'll piecemeal it back together. If we don't read it all in its entirety, it's going to be really disjointed as we break it apart verse by verse. So let's read the whole thing. It's 24 through 27, and then we'll come back and we'll pick it apart. Are you with me? All right, we're not lost yet. We just did the easy part. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity or twistedness, 
to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Clear as mud, isn't it? I don't know what we're going to do with the rest of our time. That's so simple and so clear. Oh my, and I will tell you as we get into this that I'm going to present to you what I believe is the most accurate interpretation that I have read about. Other people have other interpretations of some of these things. So just know that if you hear me say something and you go, well, that's not how I learned it, that's possible. (laughs) And I'm humble about these things and saying, I'm doing the best I can. I do my study time. I study it Saturday and teach it Sunday like I've known it my whole life. That's the real trick of the teacher. I read and I study and I do the best I can, but other people will see these things differently. I'll try to highlight some of that. And it's a complicated passage, one of the most hotly debated and discussed prophecies in the entire Bible. So are you ready to dive in? All right. 70 weeks, Gabriel says, are determined for your people and for your holy city. This gives us the scope of the prophecy and the point of the prophecy. So the point, who is this prophecy about? It says it right there. It's not a trick question. Your people, who are Daniel's people? Israel, the Jews. And what is their holy city? Jerusalem. So this whole prophecy, whatever these 70 weeks are, they have to do with a very specific group of people and a very specific place. It is the Jews and Jerusalem. And that's why I say, if you really want to know what is happening in our world, it doesn't have anything to do with America. It has to do with Israel. Israel and Jerusalem are the key to all of God's timeline and all of God's plan. We're in here. I'll show you. I'll point us out. Don't blink or you'll miss us. But I'll point us out. We haven't been around that long. So we'll see us here. But just know, it's not America that's the focus. It's Israel. So that's the point what this prophecy is pointing to, but the scope, the span is 70 weeks. Now, most scholars agree that what's being said here is 70 weeks of years. How long is a week? Seven days. It's a set of seven is a week. So Daniel was thinking about 70 years of captivity, then going back to Israel. Now, did you guys have your coffee this morning? I hope so. I mean, you're going to have to love God with all your mind this morning. Daniel was thinking about 70 years, and Gabriel comes and says, I want to expand your vision a little bit. It's 70 weeks of years, not just 70 years. The plan for Israel is much longer time period than just 70 years. It's 70 weeks of years. So how many years would be 70 weeks of years? 70 times 7 is 490 years in this period of history. 
This prophecy covers a period of 490 years. Are you with me? All right. So we know the scope. And by the way, just for information, God has historically dealt with his people in 490-year chunks, from Abraham to the promised land, 490 years, from Joshua to the kingdom, the establishment of the kingdom, 490 years, from the kingdom to captivity, 490 years. And then again, we'll see this last 490-year period that finishes out all of world history, at least human world history. What will take place? So now we know how long the scope, the point, what's going to take place in this 490-year period? Well, he tells us there are six things that we can expect to see accomplished in the scope of this prophecy. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So there's six things really kind of grouped together in two groups of three. The first three things connect back to Daniel chapter 9, verses 5 and 7. The first three things deal with transgression and sin and iniquity. Did you see that? Isn't that what Daniel was praying about? Isn't that what Daniel's heart was broken about? Oh, our nation, oh, our sin, oh, our iniquity means to twist. I mean, look around our world, things have gotten twisted. Your lives get twisted, my life gets twisted. Jesus comes in, he straightens things out for me. So this 70 week period is going to accomplish the finishing or literally the restricting or holding back the forbidding of the transgression, the crossing the line with God, the rebellion against God. It's going to make an end. The word is used in the Bible to speak of running out of time or running out of money. When you run out of time, you've come to the end. When you run out of money, like the prodigal son, you've come to the end. So when you've run out of sins, you've come to the end. I came to the end because of my sins, but in this case, to make an end or to complete sins and to make reconciliation or atonement for iniquity. So God is in the process of this prophecy going to deal in finality with transgressions and sins and iniquity. And the next three things, they're all kind of lumped together as well. God is going to bring in everlasting righteousness. I mean, that alone should tell us that this prophecy is speaking of have not been accomplished yet, unless I'm missing something. Has God already ushered in everlasting righteousness and I missed it? I mean, I watched the news last night. I'm thinking not so much. Everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecies. So to place a seal on something when a letter is complete, in that day you'd roll up the scroll and you'd put a seal on it, the wax with your stamp in it. And that would mean the letter is complete. So I've sealed it up, it's finished. By the end of this, all prophecy, all vision completed with this 70 year period. Nothing left in God's prophecy to do, to see, or to happen. And to anoint the most holy. That's also gonna happen, to anoint the most holy. Now, when I read that, probably like when you read that, my first thought is who is being spoken of as the most holy. I would have thought Jesus. But when you do a little research, you find out that the wording here is never used of people, always of things or a place, specifically the temple or the things of the temple. So it seems that one of the things that's gonna happen is the temple and the things of the temple will be anointed. Now, currently, there is no temple, Jewish temple in Israel. So you'll see how that plays out as we go forward. So Daniel would be thinking 
all this is going to happen when we come back to Israel, when we come back to Jerusalem. God is saying, Daniel, it's actually a 490-year period. Isn't God's timing funny? We think things are going to happen right away. I pray, and I'm wondering why I didn't get my answer like now. But God has a different timetable. And today you're learning about God's timetable for human history all in a nutshell. So verse 25 says, Know therefore, Daniel and us, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, now who would that be? Now you're right on the money. That's Jesus. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So we get a little pointers and pinpoints in history right now from Gabriel. He says, look, if you want to know, you want to understand, I'm going to give you the time references for this prophecy. The beginning of it, it starts with the command to restore and build Jerusalem. I had you mark Nehemiah, didn't I? What you'll have to know is there were a number of different edicts or commands regarding Jerusalem in the time of Daniel. From Cyrus, there was the command to rebuild the temple. There's, I think, three or four different decrees that go out. But the prophecy is speaking of a specific one, the specific one here in Nehemiah, not for the building of this temple, but the building of the city. So look at Nehemiah chapter 2. Are you with me still? Sorry, you're hanging on the edge of your prophetic seat, no doubt. Nehemiah 2 verse 1 said, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, that's the Hebrew month, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I, that's Nehemiah, took the wine and gave it to the king. So Nehemiah was a cupbearer, which means that he had to taste the food before Artaxerxes got it in case it was poison. Talk about a difficult job to have. He was in charge of tasting the wine, make sure no one had poisoned it. So he had a relationship with King Artaxerxes. This is Artaxerxes I. Artaxerxes Longimanus is his name because Longimanus means long-handed because history tells us he had one hand longer than the other. So this is that Artaxerxes. We know when he started to rule. You can read that in the Encyclopedia Britannica. 465 BC is when he started to rule. Now we're talking about the 20th year. So you subtract 20 because we're in BC moving towards zero. 20 from 465 gives us 445, right on. And this is when the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. So he requests the opportunity to rebuild Jerusalem and the king grants the request. We know the date 445 BC. We know the specific date is not just 445 BC, but it tells us that it's in the month of Nisan. So that would have been the month of March, 445 BC. So now we know the time is broken up into three sections. There's seven years and 62 years. So seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. That equals the 70. The seven weeks plus the 62 equals 69 weeks of years or 483 years. 
All right, I told you this was going to be tough. You had your coffee, right? Hang with me. So you go from March 14th, 445, travel forward 483 years. You use a 360-day Babylonian calendar, not a 365 calendar that we use. And you come to the date. I didn't do the math. I hope you don't think that. There's a book called The Coming Prince by a guy named Sir Robert Anderson. He was an inspector for Scotland Yard, of all places. You know, much like Lee Strobel was a journalist, and he wrote The Case for Christ because of his investigation. Robert Anderson used his investigative skills to search out the prophecy of Daniel, did all the research, crunched all the numbers, did the math, included leap years, all that stuff, and came to the date April 6th, 32 AD. 483 years after the decree went forward. Others have looked at his research and improved on it, tweaked it a little bit, still coming up with roughly the same time period. One guy actually said it would be 444 BC because of a year of ascension for King Artaxerxes. So at 445 is the year he would have become king. I know this is all very important to you, but it should be. Now watch why. You'll see the point in a minute. So he would go 444 BC to 33 A.D., the year of Jesus' crucifixion. But either way, we don't know for sure, but either way, both of them say, this is an accurate prophecy. You got 173,885 days, and any Jew who knew the Bible could read this prophecy and know the exact time when, who was going to show up at the end of that 62 weeks? Messiah the Prince, Jesus. So what happens is that takes us right to the date of Jesus's triumphal entry to the day. And Jesus, his whole public ministry, he's telling people, don't tell people about me. Don't tell people about me. Don't tell people about me. And the triumphal entry, he does these weird things. He says, go get me a donkey. And he rides into Jerusalem. He accepts all of the praise and all of the louding as king. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they put the palm branches down, and they welcome him as their king. But by the end of the week, he gets crucified, rejected, crucified. So the triumphal entry is the day that Daniel is being told when Messiah the prince will arrive. So any Jew would have, should have, could have known that. And now you understand that when Jesus gets rejected, you'll understand a little bit better what is said in Luke 19, And when he approached, that's Jesus, he saw the city and wept over it. And he said, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Then he describes the destruction of the temple. And he says, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In other words, Jesus is saying, you could have read Daniel. You would have known the prediction that I would come, your king would come on this day to establish the kingdom. And you could have known, but you did not. They were looking for somebody different. Isn't that a sad thing when people have a concept of what God is supposed to be? And because he's not what they think that God should be, they reject him. I know a lot of people that are in that place right now. Well, if God should be like this and God should do this and God should act like this, how about letting him be God, letting him be who he is? I mean, I don't like it when people try to make me be someone I'm not. And if you don't want me as I am, then that's fine. You don't have to have a relationship with me. But I can't be somebody I'm not. As pastors, we always try to be, why can't you be more like Charles Stanley? Or why can't you be more? Because I'm me. I can't be. I got to be like me. 
So we have that approach to God sometimes of, well, if you don't want my son like he is, full of love and full of compassion, full of humility, then you can reject him. And they did. So notice the division of time, and this is important. There was the seven weeks that's delineated apart. That's 49 years. That's the time it took from the decree to actually rebuild the city. And then from there to the triumphal entry is 443 years or 62 weeks of years. Now, the question is that last one-year period, that last period of seven years, is that directly following Jesus's triumphal entry or is there a gap? And you will find differences. I'm going to tell you there's a gap. And here's why. Let's read verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Doesn't say in during the 62 weeks. So the 62 weeks, that 483 year period ended when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. But then the problem is, did he establish his kingdom? Somebody say no. Why? He was rejected. The Jews said, crucify him, crucify him. And the crowd then, so fickle, the crowd begins to chime in and yells, crucify him. And Pilate says, behold your king. They say, we have no king, but Caesar. Horrifying. They rejected him as king. Came to set up his kingdom. So 443 years, 62 weeks later, the Messiah is cut off, not during, and it's not part of the 70th week. It's in this time gap. Jesus is cut off. He's crucified. Now that's crazy. Like the Messiah of the Jews comes to this people and he gets killed by them. But it wasn't for himself. Jesus was crucified not because he had done anything wrong. He was crucified for me and for you and for his own people. And you say, hold on a second, pastor. Time out. Time out. The Messiah was cut off. He was killed. And that's exactly what God said. Time out. Now I know Some of you are athletic fans, and I know in here we got some basketball fans, so you'll have to stop me if I'm wrong. The last minute of a basketball game can last like 30 minutes. Is that true? I mean, they throw the ball in, they dribble it, take a shot, timeout. And they do that like 20 times in the last minute. So there's this clock still says 50 seconds, but they're all huddled up, planning what to do, strategizing how to throw a three-pointer, whatever they're going to do. And then they come back on, and the clock starts again. We live, in terms of God's prophetic time clock, we live in a time out, a prophetic time out. When Jesus was crucified, when he was rejected, the prophecy stopped. So we live in what's called the church age. This is where America fits. The church age or the time of the Gentiles. So the gospel came first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, to the non-Jew. Romans 11, Paul says, blindness has happened to Israel in part, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Luke 21, Jesus said that Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So I told the first service, I'll tell you guys, it's a common thing that we pastors say. Paul said, God will pick up his mission with his work with Israel once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So if you're not a Jew, and you're here today, and you've been rejecting Jesus, he's been working in your heart, but you've been rejecting him, if you accept him today, then we can all be raptured and go to heaven. Because maybe that will end. There's nothing else that has to happen. God can start the clock whenever he wants. There's no event 
that has to happen for God to start the clock again. Now, what we believe, we here at Calvary Chapel, I read the Bible, and this is what I believe, what's called a pre-tribulation rapture. That last seven-year period, that last week, the 70th week of Daniel, is what we often call the tribulation period or the time of Jacob's trouble. It has to do with Israel, not the church. So before God starts that time, he's going to take us, his church, into heaven to be with him. It's called the rapture, the snatching away. And then once that happens, then he'll continue. Then the clock starts and off he'll go with Israel for seven years that we call the tribulation. So nothing has to happen. God can do that whenever he wants. And that's why no matter where you are in prophecy, no matter what you think about the end times, there are two things everybody pretty much agrees on. Number one, Jesus is coming back. Most everybody agrees on that. Some of us are what we call pan-millennialists. We ever believe that it's going to happen. However it pans out, it's going to happen. So I don't get bothered by it. But he's coming back. And the second thing is we should be ready. We should live in a state of readiness. If the rapture happened today, that all of a sudden, you know, you know how fast things change. Some of you watched 9-11, the planes fly into the Twin Towers, and you realize that our world changed in a moment. You could go to bed tonight and wake up to a completely different world tomorrow. You know, you know we walk a razor's edge. So God says, I want you to live ready. Be ready. What does it mean to be ready? Are you living in a state of readiness? You say, well, I love this, but I like God. I, mean, I like church, but oh, I really love this. At the moment that the rapture happens, at the moment when Christ comes back, that probably won't matter as much to you because you realize the time is short. Seven-year period of fulfillment is all that's left. It's bittersweet, you know, as we talk about Jerusalem being trampled by Gentiles until the time the Gentiles are fulfilled. Even to this day, we've been to Israel, I don't know, six, seven times. We've taken groups of people there and there's this awesome moment when we're on the bus, we're coming up from the Dead Sea and we're heading toward Jerusalem and everything is up because of elevation to Jerusalem. And you go through this tunnel and the bus driver puts on this passionate, powerful song and you're just ready to see Jerusalem for the first time. It's a very special moment. It's a very spiritual moment. And then as you emerge from the tunnel, there it is, Jerusalem, the holy city. And everybody just, oh, it's so special. And then you realize the focal point of Jerusalem is not a Jewish temple. What is it, folks? It's the Dome of the Rock Mosque. It's the big gold dome with the saying under it in Islamic that says, God has no son. The Temple Mount, still under Muslim control, still a lot of controversy there. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is there. The Dome of the Rock Mosque is there. Still being trampled by the Gentiles, just as the prophecy in Daniel says, to the day, to the day. Now, the prophecy goes on, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So now we go from the crucifixion to the people of the prince who is to come. Who is the prince who is to come? So there's the Messiah, the prince. He came, was crucified. He ascended. He's coming back. But who's the prince who is to come? The Antichrist. But sometimes in prophecy, and here's what you have to understand. Sometimes in prophecy, many, many years can take place between two sentences. Jesus gives an example of this when he is speaking in the synagogue in Luke chapter four. He's quoting from Isaiah and he stops his reading mid-sentence because the next sentence in Isaiah 
doesn't apply to him or to that moment. So there's a span of time, the people of the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, shall destroy the city in the sanctuary. Did that happen? Say, yes, it did. 70 AD, it sure did. The prince who is to come, the Antichrist, remember there's many Antichrists. There's the spirit of Antichrist in many, many people throughout history. And Titus Vespasian is one of those people. The spirit of Antichrist is that spirit of anti-Semitism. The Antichrist hates the Jew. And we see that in our world. Isn't it weird the hatred toward the Jew, the attempt to destroy the Jew, have people ever succeeded? And they never will. God's not done with his people. God is not done with his people. But Titus Vespasian, in 70 AD, 60,000 Roman soldiers flood into Jerusalem from three different directions. There have been uprisings. There's been unrest. Titus decides he's going to deal with it. They breach wall after wall, and they make their way into the temple. Now, I watch history videos about this stuff. And this is their wording, not mine, that Roman soldiers streamed into the temple courtyard and set fire to the temple. They killed, they stabbed, they trampled anyone and anything in their path. The temple gets burned. The lower city is burned. The upper city is burned. Survivors are carried off captive to a worse fate than having been killed. Some escape to a place called Masada, which we visit when we go to Israel, and they're there for three years. The Romans finally come down, and they commit mass suicide rather than being taken captive by the Romans. And then you understand what Jesus says in Matthew 23, when he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted, I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. So Jesus predicted it, the compassion of our God. And you know, when you see people living a life that is in rejection, it might be somebody here, maybe someone drug you to church today and you're going, what is this guy talking about? This is the craziest stuff I've ever heard. You've checked out long ago. You just have no interest in the things of God or the word of God. And God is pleading with you. He is desiring to gather you under his wing like a mother hen gathers her children. But he gives you the choice to resist that. That's amazing about God. He will not make you. He will not force you, but he'll offer. He wants to gather you just like Jerusalem because he sees that what happens if you don't is destruction. So the Roman armies flooded in. They streamed in, not my wording, but the wording of a historical video. And we see the rest of the prophecy says, the end of it shall be with a flood an overwhelming conquering of the city. And till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Wars have gone on and continue to go on in Jerusalem and around the Middle East and around the world since that time and before that time. During its long history, Jerusalem has been destroyed twice, besieged 23 times, attacked 52 times, and captured and recaptured 44 times. That's just from Wikipedia. Their walls have been rebuilt 17 times. This has been a city in turmoil. Of all the cities in the world, Jerusalem is the place where God puts his name. And it is the most contested city to this day on planet Earth. Now we're going to jump ahead again. Then he, the prince who is to come, shall confirm or make a firm covenant with many for one week. Now we get into the final week. So there's been this time gap. We talked about it then this final seven-year period is going to involve he, who? 
he, the prince who is to come, is going to make a covenant for that seven-year period. Now, again, we're jumping ahead in time to the end times, to that tribulation period. This figure, the Antichrist, we've already seen him depicted as the tiny horn and these various visions that Daniel had. He's going to make some type of covenant agreement, some type of peaceful arrangement in the Middle East that's going to involve somehow the Jews rebuilding their temple because he's going to reinstitute sacrifice and offering and that's going to happen. Now, again, I said, what's the focal point of the Temple Mount in Israel right now? It's not a Jewish temple. It's the mosque. So you want to talk about world war. If the Antichrist has to tear down the mosque to build a temple, that's not going to go over well. But many people believe that the mosque is not built on the site where the temple would have stood before it was destroyed. That that actually is a little bit in a different place on the Temple Mount. So the Antichrist is probably going to broker some kind of treaty so that the Jews can build their temple right next to the Dome of the Rock Mosque in the place where the original temple probably would have stood, but the scholars have gotten it wrong for years. So that's what's going to happen. And the Jews are trying to, the Orthodox Jews are trying to rebuild their temple even as we speak. They're working toward that. And when the Antichrist makes that happen or allows for that to happen, they are going to say, this is Messiah. And they're going to accept the Antichrist as their Messiah. The only difference between us and the Jews is we believe the Messiah has already come. They're still waiting. And they're going to accept Antichrist as Messiah. But something happens in the middle of that week. The next verse says, in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So you can't bring an end to something that's not happening. He'll bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So three and a half years into the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to show his true colors. He's going to set himself up to be worshiped as God. And he's going to commit some type of idolatrous abomination that will bring an end to everything. He'll demand allegiance, again, to be worshipped as God. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Again, Jesus quotes this, Matthew 24. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel... So this couldn't have been Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid dynasty, couldn't have been fulfilled in him. Remember, there's a lot of minor fulfillments of things. God says something, it has a minor fulfillment here, a minor fulfillment there, but still waiting for the complete fulfillment. Antiochus was a type, Titus Vespasian may be a type, but Antichrist is what this is all pointing to. And he will commit an idolatrous abomination in the middle of that time. And that's what Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place in the temple. Then he said, head for the hills, because it's coming. Everything's coming down. But the Antichrist will be destroyed when the true Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom. So easy stuff, huh? Piece of cake. You knew it all already. Pastor, why are you telling us stuff we already knew? I didn't write it. I'm just a messenger. These are challenging things, but again, I think our takeaway is God's word never returns void. If God says it, you can take it to the bank. And he said a lot of other things that we know are true. Jesus rose from the dead. And because that's true, I know, even though I can't understand it, I know that I will rise from the dead. It doesn't make a lick of sense to me. 
I don't understand it. Am I alone? I don't get it, but I believe it with all of my heart because so much of what God has said to me has come true in my life. He promised me a new life. He gave it to me. He promised me new desires. The desires God has given me to be a pastor. I didn't want to do that. I'll do anything but that. But then I couldn't imagine doing anything else. God changes our desires. Get in the word. Pray through the word. Live for the Lord. The end is near, truly. Might be tonight. Be ready. Jesus is coming back.